What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Wise Guys Hideaway, man. Let me tell you something. I've been out there just fucking slaving away at my new job, climbing cell phone towers and, uh, you know, getting everything all swapped up for the 5G and making sure that these little uh, devices in our hand that keep us from, you know, being intimate or civil with one another, gotta make sure they keep working. So this particular episode of Wise Guys Hideaway is brought to you in part by my main employer, Augusta Tower Technologies out in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Shouts out to the boys. It's, uh, it's also brought to you in part by our thing clothing apparel, uh, which is a Detroit made, uh, clothing brand from ex Detroit, you know, hustler and mob enforcer Gunnar Lindblom, who, uh, you know, became an author during a, a stint in, you know, the penitentiary. And, uh, after he got out and released his books to be a King volume one and two, you see it there in the background. He, uh, started up a clothing label, our, th- our thing, clothing apparel. And, uh, this podcast is a endorser, supporter, and partner of that. Another shout-out I got to give is to my boy Scott M. Bernstein, probably the one of the smartest mob historians that I'm privy to talk to. He wrote that little brown book right there in the back, The Motor City Mafia. He's also the proprietor of the original Gangster Podcast and uh, a real mentor to me, man. I'm always fucking bothering that guy and hopping on and, you know, just trying to pick his brain. So I appreciate him taking the time out. Uh, another shout I gotta give to my boy Boston Rob. You know my partner in crime and all this. You know he's he's my editor. He's my he's my behind the scenes guy. I'm gonna get him on here eventually. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get him on. I want to hear that. You know that I swore it. You know that Boston accent. You know we gotta get him on here. But uh, but yeah, for right now, I mean he just holds things down. On, like you know <clears throat> on the other end, you know I help me edit shit and get shit. You know and focus, sending me info. And so I really appreciate you, Rob. You know shout out to my boy David Brexbier across the pond. You know I'm gonna send this one to you personally. You know, a uh, big shout out to uh, Larry Mazza, the author of uh, The Life, which is uh, a true to blue tale of just the grit and grime of, you know, <laughs> mob life, you know, during during the, the heyday, really, during the Colombo Wars. Uh, another another shout out I got to give is to an individual I hope will soon join me on the podcast, and that is Frank D'Amato, who is the author of uh, The Karma and the Snake, uh, you know, a true story, true crime story, as well as uh, he's got a new book out about Albert the Mad Hatter or the you know Lord High Executioner Anastasia. So, uh, and he's also, I mean, he's he's as real as they come too, man. He grew he grew up around this shit. So, big shout out to all those guys. You know what I mean? Like uh, David Randazzo, Ronnie Roach. You know, David Randazzo, I appreciate you the other night at the Baymount, dog. Appreciate that. So, we're gonna get into it here, everybody. Welcome to episode twenty-one, and the first one we're broadcasting on YouTube. So, you know, let's get after it. Alright, so now, I'm sure most people have seen the movie Casino, but if you haven't, it, I mean, you've either been living under a rock, you don't like mob movies, it is a really, really long movie, but uh, Robert De Niro, Sharon Stone, Joe Pesci, you know, Martin Scorsese's director, you know, you got good old James Woods playing a coked out scumbag, and Don Rickles, you know, playing a hotel man, or casino manager and shit, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty epic tale, and uh, the one we're going to be focusing on here, the two we're going to be focusing on, really, would be... Tony Spilantro, a.k.a. Nicky Santorum, which is Joe Pesci's character, which is a, a really good fit, actually. The scene where he's walking out of the courthouse and he's got that gray streak through his hair. He's in that brown suit. is Ah, oh, man, he, he looks a lot like him. And then the other one would be Sam Ace Rothstein, which is, in real life, Frank Lefty Rosenthal. Now, we're primary, primarily going to focus on the Spilatros, or, you know, Tony Spilatro, as well as his brother, Michael Spilatro, because it was on this day in 1986 
that they would quote unquote go missing, you know, which everybody knows when you go missing in the mob, you know, she gone, you go. I mean, they, <laughs> you just go, <laughs> you either fucking either done run off and join the witness protection program or, you know, you in a trunk somewhere and you fucking in a shallow grave. But, uh, Anthony John Spilatro was born, you know, May 19th, 1938. And, uh, I mean, as I, just said he he disappeared on this day in 1986 and would shortly be discovered on the 22nd in this month in 1986 uh buried in a shallow grave along with his brother uh they had both been stripped down to their underwear and uh, they were almost unrecognizable they uh they had been pummeled to death and uh we're gonna tell you how, how that all came to be now tony was a stout little thing. He's five five, you know, but you know he he had the heart of a lion. But uh, his nickname was always you know Tony the Hand, you know. But uh, he he didn't he did not care for that. He did not, that's not something somebody would you know say around him. That was one of those like oh there goes the ant, you know. And oh hey how you doing Anthony? You know good to see you, you know. Like I don't know why the Chicago guys are talking like they're you know from Brooklyn, but that's just how I get the Chicago. I I don't know. But uh, he was forty eight when he died and. I mean, he had a hell of a run, you guys. I mean, he left behind a, a wife, Nancy, and a, and a, and a son, uh, which I do believe was Anthony Jr. I'm, I'm, I'm not completely sure on that. But, I mean, along with being killed with his brother, I mean, Tony Spilancho really sank a big chunk of, you know, the Chicago outfits sort of bread and butter. I mean, he didn't really sink it because the way the skim got found out anyway was on a wiretap uh, from a Kansas City underboss where they were discussing the the murder of uh, the Irishman Danny Green by Ray Ferrito and, you know, the feds picked that up and then, like, you know, they worked into the skim and then uh, the Kansas City underboss, I can't remember his name to save my life, been on, been climbing cell phone towers, you know, 14 hours a day all week, so I'm a little burnt up and pretty stupid at this point, but uh, nonetheless, he uh, he did what no mobster should ever do and he kept records of all that shit from all his trips to Vegas, so that half sank them and then Spilatro's wild brandish, you know, uh larger than life attitude would not help their cause either. Now, a little fun fact about Tony's brother Michael was he actually starred in an episode of Magnum PI. I don't know if he starred in uh, more than one, but I know I know for a fact he starred in one uh episode of Magnum PI. So he kinda had that Hollywood glitz and glam about him. Um unfortunately, you know, that you know that million dollar smile would uh, eventually be knocked out at the hands of, you know, several ruthless ruthless mobsters but uh nonetheless we get back to tony now tony was born the fourth out of six children right and he was born to you know two hard-working immigrant parents uh his his father uh pasquella patsy spilatro senior and then his mother antonette spilatro now his father had immigrated here in 1914 you know he uh worked his way you know into the midwest in illinois and uh settled in chicago and opened up a, a family restaurant. That's what, I mean, that that was his dream. That was, I mean, that's the American dream. You know what I mean? You you know, you come from some run, you know, run down, more, you know, poverty stricken village in Sicily. And, you, you know, you make it to America and you, you grit, you grind through, you know, wherever you got to grind through. And then eventually you got your own little family business. No one, no one can tell you what to do. You're your own boss. You know, you know, your kids will always have a job, but that's not quite how it played out for old Patsy, because along with just the allure of the streets during this time period, you know, for any young man that, you know, had any potential to join a, a gang or organized crime crew or whatever you want to call it, 
his restaurant was privy by, you know, infamous, notorious Chicago mobsters like Sam Giancana, you know, Momo, they call them, or uh, Frank the Enforcer Nitty. I mean, you know, Joe Badder. I, I mean, you name it. I mean, you name it. And so very early on, Tony and four of his brothers, you know, so five out of six of the kids, uh, they hit the streets and they hit it with a vengeance. I mean, they start, you know, robbing cart vendors, you know, doing, you know, small change holdups, robbing purses, you know, all that shit that, you know, later on in their life, mobsters will claim, like, never me, never me. Like, when you were 13, 14, you were fucking swiping wallets and, you know, fucking breaking open parking meters and shit like that. Don't get, you know, don't, don't, don't get like that. We've all been there. Everybody, everybody's been a nickel and dime crook. And if you haven't, then I don't know why you're listening to me. Jesus. <laughs> So during this time period when, you know, you're just, you're, uh, you're on the streets and you're trying to build a name for yourself, Tony meets another aspiring young hood by the name of Frank Collada. Now, Frank Collada is played by Frank Vincent in the movie and they, I mean, they kept his name the same, you know, just Frankie, you know, one of my favorite parts when they're beating him with bats in the corner, he's like, Frankie, you piece of shit, like, <laughs> no, it's so funny, oh man, but uh, yeah, so Collada and Spilatro meet and uh, they begin, you know, sort of running hustles together, uh, you know, trying to, you know, break up dice games or, you know, they're getting in fights and you know, trying, you know, hijacking cigarette trucks, you know, just like, you know, that, that low right mid-level type stuff. And now eventually the two of them will, uh, both work under one of the most notorious mob enforcers I've ever researched. And that's, uh, uh, Sam Mad Sam, uh, Sam Samuel Madsen, Mad Sam, Jesus, to Stefano. And, uh, I mean, this guy was just, he was one sick pup, man. I mean, he was a rapist. He was, uh, I mean, can't shake a stick at the amount of people fucking Mad Sam killed. And it was just a very futile mentor, if you will, because he took the already budding young psychopath that was Bellatro and then, you know, the, the, the more sociopathic, thieving narcissist that was Collada. And, I mean, he just fucking molded them into... Two pretty, you know, prime, prime uh, gangsters, really, at very young ages. I mean, he he <laughs> he would have Tony, you know, hit a guy with a you know blowtorch while he's beating him with a wrench. You know, Tony's fucking 16, 17, something like that. And you know, Mad Sam is just yeah, I'll, I'll burn him more, burn him more. Like he was, Mad Sam was crazy. He'll get he'll definitely get his own episode. I uh, I'm not a fan of him because uh, any any uh anybody who's a rapist is not a uh, respectable in my book most definitely that's uh i mean i i can give the tip of the cap to a lot of crime but that definitely ain't one of them so uh but he'll i mean he still earned his own fucking pocket i don't, I don't like most of these guys <laughs> i mean they're just they're fascinating to me but yeah they're definitely uh they're, they're they're good fellas but they're not nice fellas you know what i mean so that's eventually how Splatro will get his claim to fame and he'll really get his start in in the outfit in the chicago outfit is that eventually when Mad Sam was, you know, being Mad Sam and br bringing way too much attention down on himself, I mean, he's fucking, he's yelling at, you know, media coverage people, you know, talking about this, that, and whatever. Uh, I'm, I'm pr pretty sure he, uh, he either did or attempted to kill one of his own brothers. And, I mean, it was just, he had to go. So, the powers that be, you know, they... Uh, bring in Spilatro, and they tell you, know, this is your chance, kid, and I mean, Spilatro can't be but 1920 at the time, and, uh, he goes to Mad Sam's house, and he, you know, pumps five bullets into him in, in his own garage, and leaves him where he found him, you know, the student becomes a teacher, and the teacher, 
I mean, becomes fertilizer, I guess, you know, I don't, I don't really know what else the, uh, old boy would become. <laughs> now, after that, you know, Splatro, he, he's in, he's in like Flint, you know what I mean? He's, uh, he starts to, you know, get buddy, buddy to, you know, some of the higher echelon members. And it's during this time period that he also encounters, uh, what will be the brains of the organization in Vegas for all these guys. And that's, uh, Frank Lefty Rosenthal, AKA Sam Ace Rothstein, uh, Robert De Niro's character who actually, when uh, he was asked to, you know, dispose any of the personal information he wouldn't mind sharing, uh, Lefty Rosenthal said he, uh, he didn't want to be a part of the, the picture at all. He, uh, he hung up and he's like, you know, no, thank you. And then he had heard wind that Robert De Niro would be betraying him in the movie and, uh, <laughs> instantly changed his tune. <laughs> uh, Frank Collada would actually help with the movie too, because, uh, eventually Frank Collada, he, I mean, like these guys go out to Vegas, right? It's uh, it's 1971, and Rosenthal has been out in Vegas for a few years, and I mean, he was out there just primarily professionally gambling. Now, like when Rosenthal came from Chicago, in Chicago, what he what he would do for the bosses is, you know, he he was the type of guy he could find those you know 11 to one odd games, and get you that 11. He just, I mean, he just knew it. You know, he. He knew if, you know, somebody on the team was uh, injured, but the injury was, you know, more severe or less severe. He knew if a guy was unfocused because his girlfriend just broke up with him. He knew the type of, you know, bounce you got off of different woods at the, you know, college basketball courts. I mean, he, I mean, dope horses, you know, you know, and crooked referees, whatever it was that could, you know, clear a big number. Uh, Rosenthal did it and, uh, and he did it very well. And that's where, the help of Spilatro would be enlisted, uh, not only in Chicago, you know, sort of watching his back from all the, you know, nickel and dime hoods that are going to try to rip him off. Cause Rosenthal was uh, Jewish. He was, he, uh, he wasn't Italian, but he was definitely protected by, <laughs> by the, you know, Arcado, Arcado's army, I'll call it, you know, which trickled down into just a, a slew of very dangerous individuals and, uh, Spilatro being probably the most dangerous, uh, during, during his time, during his heyday. Yeah. I would definitely say that was one of, this one of the top, Chicago enforcers without a doubt. And, uh, so, you know, they sort of put him in charge of just keeping an eye on Rosenthal and eventually they ship him out to Vegas. And then eventually, uh, you know, they weave him into running a casino for them that they skim, you know, millions of dollars, you know, a month off the top. Like, I mean, everybody that's put into the count room where all the money's piled up and counted through they're they're all, you know, they're all the outfits guys. So, so yeah, I mean, they was making some serious money. But Rosenthal ran the casino like a tight ship. Like, you know, once the money got to the count room, he no longer, you know, above his pay grade. That's the powers that be. Out on the floor, though, you know, people didn't cheat in, in Rosenthal's casinos. People didn't, you know, you didn't fuck around there. The only one who would fuck around there was Spilatro when he finally came out in 1971. And when he came out in 1971, at first he was all good. You know, he, uh, you know, he set up a, a few rackets here and there, mainly shaking down like pimps and drug dealers and stuff. I mean, they didn't have nobody to run to. So he shows up and he's like, yeah. You know, I'm Tony Spilatro from Chicago. Like, <laughs> time to pay the piper. 20% every week putting you out of business. But uh, eventually he starts getting wild in the casinos. And just, you know, he hires a crew of cowboys pretty much. He's got a couple of his guys from back home. But then he starts taking, like, just local yokels. And, like, busting up high-stakes poker games. And fucking, you know, trying to cheat at blackjack. And trying to rig slots. And it's like... You can't even go next door to do it. You're doing it in, like in in your boys' casino and your people's casino. Come on now, man. And eventually, I mean, it gets them it gets them put in the back, uh, the black book. And 
I mean, just like if you've seen Casino, using like like he says, like there's only two names in that book, and one of them's still Al Capone. Like you know, like it's, I mean, there, there's not that many people in it in the grand scheme of things. But uh, if you do end up in that little black book, you know, there's two names that are still in there. You know, Anthony Spilatro and you know Al Capone. So I mean, you definitely uh, you've definitely made it as far as like if you're a, a card card shark or a, you know a hustler or a cheat, and they put you in that little book after they give you a fucking beat, and yeah, you, uh, you get to kind of chuckle to yourself, but don't go back in the casino fucking around, <laughs> they'll bury you out in the desert, you know, <clears throat> so after that happens, I mean, it's not like you can report back to the bosses and be like, hey, I can't, you know, I can't shake down poker games and any of that anymore, so like, we're good, right, I just gotta watch, you know, Rosenthal, and then I don't gotta send nothing back home, no, like, <laughs> they'd send the hit squad out there right then, so Splatter did the only thing he knew how to do. He he put together a few guys, one of them being uh, you know, Frank Collada. He you know flies him out and um around, you know, nineteen I wanna say like nineteen seventy-nine, he flies out Collada and uh they sort of just start this renegade cowboy crew of robbers known as the hole in the wall game. I mean actually the device is pretty pretty brilliant, but I mean they were just all so fucking wild that like it was never gonna last forever. What they would do is like a, a jewelry store, like a, an electronics, you know, store, an art depot or something. They'd pull a panel truck along the side and, you know, they'd have a, you know, they'd have the whole trap door bit and they'd, they'd slide out of, you know, the side of the panel truck. They'd put up insulation and, you know, they'd take a big old, you know, just start screwing. Just a big old rivet gun, just start screwing and put enough holes in it to where when they take like a mini sledgehammer, put the insulation against it, whack, 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 whack brick by brick and then you go right into the side bat bypass the alarms and i mean they made a killing doing it uh they also started um you know moving cocaine which they also started snorting cocaine i mean one tends to go with the other it, it, it seems anyway you know <laughs> in my experience and in every case i've ever read and anyone i've ever talked to <laughs> but uh along with that they started sh- uh robbing high rollers which would be like let's say you get a you got a valet, you got a, this kid who works valet at, uh, you know, the Flamingo or the, you know, what, whatever. The uh, Stardust is actually the casino that they were uh, overseeing. So, you get, you know, they got this 19-year-old kid and uh, he likes to gamble. He likes to party, he likes women. So, he, he, he takes a loan off. You get Tony Spilatro. He thinks you and him are buddies. But now, all of a sudden, he owes you money and it's been two weeks. And he sees that you two are not fucking buddies and you are dead serious. That you will break both his legs with a bat in front of everybody. So you tell him, you know what, kid, don't worry about the 5000 You just let me know when, you know, fill in the blank, such and such. You, you, you sort of do a little recon and figure out who the high rollers are in town. You can tell they run, you know, they run out the, the top floor suites and the girls they're with got big old long mink furs. They're, you know, their Cadillacs got gold, everything on it. And, uh, and I mean, some of them not even gangsters. Some of them just like... I mean, just like really successful businessmen, Wall Street guys, you know, people who just like to live flashy and have managed to make it. And, you know, when the valet takes his car and the gentleman and his lady go inside, he'd ring back to Spilatro, you know, let them know that you're all clear. And they'd go to the penthouse suite and then rob them blind, man, because people like that, like, yeah, they might be decked out in jewelry and all that jewelry you're seeing, man. That's one set. That's jewelry for that outfit. You know what I mean? So, and then, and then loose cash. I mean, it's the 80s and shit. <laughs> Fuck. I mean, plastic wasn't that big of a thing yet. So, I mean, and that, and that goes on for, I mean, quite a while. And like, they, I mean, they really just, they just couldn't stop robbing and stealing and killing. There were so many, you know, different like shoot 'em up moments where like guys would just get, you know, 
coked out of their minds and just go start blasting. There was one instance where uh, a member of the Hole in the Wall gang was, you know, uh, wrongfully shot by police. He was holding, he was on the hero sandwich, and you know they bust a few in him, and I mean, and then they, you know, plant a gun on him. Like I mean, they, I mean things just like we're seeing in today's day and age. We, I mean, the police are just always, you know, fucking out for themselves and fucking they stick together. They're, I mean, they're the biggest gang there is. You know, real talk, which uh, <laughs> I won't get into my opinions on any of that. All I will say is, if you know, if you're going to protest, do it peacefully. If you're going to riot, light the right buildings on fire. Come on now. Come on, y'all, man. Why are you going to burn down, you know, your your buddy's dad's, you know, meat market or liquor store? You know I mean? Light up the Walmart. You know, fuck it. You know, light up the courthouse, as a matter of fact. Actually, do me a real favor. Hit that J.P. Morgan Federal Chase Bank and let my fucking credit go to just nothing. Do me a solid for your boy over here at Wise Guys Hideaway, all right? Stop. You know, burn down the right stuff. That's all I'm saying. You know, quit fucking up cars that aren't cop cars. You know, I'm all about anarchy. I mean, you, you guys see the, the the drop bag with, you know, the gonzo fist and the, you know, American flag with the anarchy through it. But, I mean, but you got to kind of, you know, at least pick a lane. You can't just... And to, to, don't try to stop me in the freeway because, like, I wouldn't play that shit. You know what I mean? Like I said, I'm all about the protest, but don't try to get... I'm doing 70, man. I'm, like, I'm doing 70 and nothing about everybody crowding there makes me want to stop. So that's my two cents on it. Like I said, fuck the police, as NWA put it best. Uh, it's a hard job, but fucking figure it out. I got a hard job, too. And, you know, we figure it out every day. You know, you think fucking having to send everything up a rope 300 feet and pull it off is easy so you can have your stupid cell phones it's not but we handle it so cops figure it out people either calling like either shit or get off the pot either like like quit half-assing it like just you know get it together i love y'all but like come on man and uh and what happened to corona <laughs> by the way is that, is that still a thing we still doing that anyway so you know the the robin and the thieving goes on for a while and like i said they're just it, it, they're cowboys out there and Spilatro takes even further. Not only is, you know, he's, he's getting more and more addicted to coke. He's robbing everything inside. He's, he's having people killed without permission. Uh, you know, one, one of which he actually blamed Frank Collada for. And eventually when, you know, Frank Collada would be jailed after a, uh, after a robbery on July 4th, 1981, which was the uh, Bertha's Gifts and uh, Home Furnishings on uh, East Sahara Avenue in Las Vegas. I mean... They had the slew of them, guys. I mean, they had Frank Collada, they had Joe Blasco, uh, Leo Garadio, uh, Ernest Devino, uh, <clears throat> Ernest Devino, excuse me, Larry Newman, and then Wayne Matsky. And uh, and by 1982, you know, Collada's uh, he's you know he's in prison. He get, you know catches the burglary charge and he's doing a stretch. And they actually play back to him uh, a tape of Spilatro, you know, pretty much blatantly blaming him for all the things that are going around. They're like, oh, he's half-cocked, he's killing people off orders. And all these things that Collado's doing, he really is doing on orders from Spilatro. Like, these are, these are Spilatro's calls. You know what I mean? And so, eventually, in 1982, around July, Collado's like, well, you know, I'm going to flip. You know, fuck it, I'm going to flip. Because, you know, Spilatro's going down, he's going down hard. Because the, the, the worst thing of all that he's doing is he started sticking it to, you know, Lefty Rosenthal's wife, Jerry McGee who was, you know, a working girl. She's a hustler in Vegas and uh, Rosenthal's only weakness. He actually was once quoted as saying that was the, that was the only thing I couldn't control. His only, his only spread I couldn't cover is I could never make her love me. And, uh, I mean, yeah, she was, a, she was a wild card. Now, September 1983, after Collada, you know, begins to debrief his crimes. I mean, he debriefed over 300 fucking crimes. Uh, 
Tonus Blanche was indicted on conspiracy in the Sherwin Jerry Leisner murder, uh, which was the murder of a, a real estate developer that uh, had been passed down from the powers that be. Uh, he, you know, manages to bail out at a hundred thousand dollar bond and uh, that and never uh, manages to see anything from that one. But I mean, this is this is the bad time. This is where the spiral starts coming down. He's in court for this, that, this, that. Kalada's, you know, telling everything they've done since they've been out there, and even some of the things they did back home as kids. One of them, so ruthless that Scorsese wrote it in to make it seem like it had happened in Vegas. That the scene in Casino, where he crushes his head in the vice, was actually called the Eminem murders, and it was the murders of Irish gangster William McCarthy and, uh, I mean, just another run-of-the-mill street thug, uh, James Raglia, who were found on May 14th, 1962, just beaten, tortured, uh, I mean, like I said, McCarthy's head had been crushed, like, like, crushed, like, looked like, you know, and, uh, what had happened was they, there had been a, an incident, um, a local business that was run by, you know, the individuals that Spilatro worked for was, uh, shot up by, by these cowboys, you know, McCarthy and, uh, Miraglia. And uh, a, a few people, you know, ended up getting hurt. I think a couple got killed. And so Spilatro, being the young, tough enforcer, he's, uh, he's I, I don't know if he's clipped Mad Sam yet, but I want to say it's shortly after that. Then he's still proving that tough guy name. And uh, yeah, so, you know, the powers that be, they sick him on him. They managed to get McCarthy first. And uh, Frank Collada and just Tony Spilatro tortured this guy. For two days, I mean, it's really not funny, but like, I mean, it is kind of funny because fuck him, he's, he's a scumbag too. So just trash taking out the trash, not a big deal. And this guy won't break. It's like in the movie, they said they put ice picks in his balls. They, you know, Frank Lotta's confirmed that. I mean, he's 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 a turncoat, so I mean, you take, you know, with a grain of salt. But I mean, I can see it. You know, the Irish, man, we don't budge. Tell it takes a lot for us to budge. And what it took for this guy was for his head to be squished in a vice grip. And he gives up his boy, James Raglia, who is subsequently, you know, found, hunted down like a dog. And that's all she freaking wrote. Now, Spilatro also had a really, really good hand with his attorney, who would eventually be the future mayor of Las Vegas, uh, Oscar Goodman. And I mean, Oscar was the man, dude. He, he he just kept he kept Tony calm, collective, and looking like as much of a civilian as Tony Spilatro could look. Because it's like he says in the movie, like Nikki loved being a gangster. He didn't care who knew it. it that's the truth. Tony Spilatro loved being a gangster. He did. He, he, he relished in it. He, I mean, he, it really, you know, it definitely fueled his engine, you know? And, uh, now eventually this all just starts to un unwind. This is a big, you know, big ball of pressure that it's, it's going to explode eventually. And, uh, Spilatro is going to definitely be at one of the forefronts of it. And so after the whole Kansas city wire tap bit and, uh, the fact that during the investigation of uh, Danny Green's murder, they subsequently find, you know, how to prove that the skim is going on. And that's from the records kept by uh, the KC underboss. And after that, I mean, everybody's catching indictments, you know, Rico, you know, I mean, for, <laughs> for real, for real. And uh, so not too long into this whole ordeal, they all meet at the Sheck Lounge in North Riverside, in Illinois. Uh, when I say they, I mean you know the the top the top echelon guys. You know Joe Batters, uh, you know uh, James Marcello, <clears throat> you know individuals like that. 
And uh, they begin going through the list. You know, everybody involved in this game, who's got to go, who don't got to go. Who got... Rosenthal uh, actually wasn't on the hit list. Uh, Spilatro had renegade status, has always taken that into his own, uh, like, pl- sort of like planning, because the bosses back home now be, not only they didn't even suspect, they fucking knew that he was sticking it to Jerry McGee, because she went, she couldn't keep her mouth shut about it, for real, I mean, like, she blatantly told Rosenthal, and like, every, I mean, everybody who would listen in that square block, anyway, so, <clears throat> so they, once they get to Tony's Palatro, it's like, you know, he was mentored by Mad Sam, and he just, you know, became a terrible Tony, so, fuck him, he's gotta go, and, uh, and on that rationale, because Michael had been brought out to Vegas too, you know, with Tony to help out and, you know, was getting just as involved with Tony. Michael had to go as well so that there'd be no revenge. I mean, we don't need no more bullshit from the Spilatros, you know, you know what I'm talking about? So they say, you know, clip them both. Um, the way they lured him was because when the indictments came in and the guys just started to fall out in Vegas, the Spilatros, they were gone. They hightailed it, you know. So we're back in Chicago where we're in Oak Park, and which is where Michael lives. And it's June 14th, 1986, just like it is today, except, you know, it's 1986, so. <laughs> and the the boys are suited up, like, you know, they got they got really, you know, fancy suits on because what, what's supposed to happen is they're supposed to go to, they're supposed to go to a meet point, hop in with some other wise guys, go to another meet point, Tony's supposed to be made a captain, Michael's supposed to get his butt and become a made man, so... And you get the call, you got to go. I mean, they were half suspicious this was going to be the last ride they ever took anyway because they left all their jewelry and cash and, you know, anything that, you know, why would you want to get buried with you? She can sell it, whatever. And they told their wives, uh, you know, if uh, we don't come home tonight, forget about us, we're gone. They then drove to O'Hare International Airport where they uh, met up with another, you know, another car, another another individual that drove them to a house. Now, it wouldn't be uncommon for, you know, a ceremony such as that to be in, like, an abandoned warehouse, the back of a closed restaurant, a house. So, I mean, these guys are used to going shifty places, but I'm sure that gut feeling was getting real bubbly. They walk in, they walk into the house, and they're standing in the living room. Tony says, where is everybody? He says, oh, no, we're downstairs. You know, just right on down there. Just go down there. Tony goes down the stairs, and unlike in the movie where they beat him to death in the cornfield with baseball bats, that's not how it went down. They, uh... They go down in the basement. Tony goes to put his hand out. You know, how you doing? You know, and, and when he shakes, you know, the guy's hand, he notices that everybody besides him and Michael have on uh, doctor's gloves <laughs> and that uh, there's plastic on the floor probably. And so he says, do well, I got time for a prayer? And then Tony's, you know, beaten to a submission to where like he won't, he'll no longer be able to fight back and forced to watch his little brother, Michael, uh, beat within an inch of his life uh, by with fist, not bats, with fist. Um, it's actually speculated whether or not they were actually just beaten to death and then just buried like fucking normal, or they, whether they were really beat to within an inch of their life. Uh, but, you know, it sounded good, so Scorsese put it in the movie, and then, like, yeah, anybody who eventually got caught up and indicted, and it was like, yeah, we beat them to, you know, until they was almost not breathing, and then buried them while they was breathing. Like, why not? Scorsese set you up for a better ending than if you just... You did it normally. <laughs> like, I mean, I've never beat somebody to death and then buried them. But, like, I, I, just them breathing seems like a liability. So, I don't know. Whatever. <clears throat> but, nonetheless, they're, uh, you know, they're beaten with fists, kick, punch, you know, whatever. Like I said, maybe, maybe a chunk of mortar or something that's, you know, broke off in the basement or what have you. And uh, then they're driven out 
you know, about an hour, 45 minutes outside of Illinois in that little stretch of Indiana between Illinois and Michigan. And they're buried in a shallow grave in a cornfield. And uh, they aren't found until the 22nd. And, you know, when they're found, they're beat so bad they have to go to the dental records. And, I mean, the murder goes unsolved for years. Nobody really cried that Splotro was gone. He was a sick pup. You know, Scorsese gets a hold of the whole ordeal. Pelleggi writes the book. And, I mean, it's a blockbuster. And so, once something becomes that Hollywood and like that, you know, I mean, that's a really graphic scene. You know, and Joe Pesci, fun fact, Joe Pesci actually got dinged with a bat filming that scene. <laughs> like, in the, like for real, actually. So, it's uh, it's definitely a graphic scene. It's uh, Scorsese has the last scene that he'll ever do of, like, direct violence. And actually, he hasn't broke on that. Anything after that has been sort of like... A, a, a choppy image of violence like you know gangs in New York you see the start of a of like a stabbing and then you just see the finished result you don't see the entire motion whereas in casino like they they show they show them getting dinged up pretty good so but yeah it's uh so they're buried they're buried out there and once they're found they're dug up and so the movie sort of puts their names back in you know all all the feds heads investigators and all that and nothing ever really comes of it until eventually on April 25th 2005 uh, when the 14, like, higher echelon ranking guys of the Chicago outfit, uh, I mean, there's not 14 high echelon, but, you know, captains into the boss, James Marcello, and the boss and all. And uh, it, was, <laughs> it was come to find that most of them had uh, had participated in, in the murder of the Spilatro brothers uh, on orders from, you know, boss at that time, uh, Tony Arcado, a.k.a. Joe Batters. So, I mean... It's it's kind of really on Scorsese why the Splatros would ever even be remembered. Those guys probably still would have got indicted, still would have went down, but the the push towards trying to solve who killed the Splatro brothers just because we like Scorsese put it on a big screen in a big graphic fucking way was uh yeah it was it was definitely uh, had to have been a son of a bitch for all the all the guys involved. I wonder if they watched it in the movie. When they watched the movie, I was like, oh, that's not going to be good for us. <laughs> I don't know. But I got to get to packing, you guys. I got another week on the road. More towers to climb, you know, more sights to see, you know, more uh, more clouds to try to touch, man. But uh, you got, like I said, man, everybody just, just relax out there. Like, it's good. We're going to make it. We made it through worse. Like, I mean, it's, it's what, uh, been 100 years since, like, a good pandemic. Been, you know, 100 years since we really let loose, you know, I, I mean, I guess not really, I mean, we riot every 10 years, but I mean, we riot when sports teams win too, so, but nonetheless, whether you black, whether you white, whether you're Latino, whether you're, you know, we're all American, baby, we're all American, and I love you no matter what you are, so from all of us here at Wise Guys Hideaway, you guys stay safe out there, I'm out.